Well, now I'm going to read our scripture passage this morning, which is in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. So Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, that's page 861 in the Pew Bible, um, or you can pull it up on your phone. And also, if you'd like a Bible, if you don't own a paper copy of the Bible of your own, you're welcome to take one of those from the pew as a gift from us. Hear God's word from Luke chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bill. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome again to the Brookside campus of Christ Community. Uh, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of, of leading us through a time of teaching uh, this morning. Before we do that, would you, would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would give us hearts to hear your word this morning. I pray that you would give us hearts that are softened and tender to you, responsive. I pray that you would give us hearts that are undivided and wholeheartedly seek after you. We hear hearts, have hearts that would receive your word and faith. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen. So the Chiefs won. That, I double-checked that actually happened. Um, there was a parade and everything I heard. Did anyone go to the parade? Yeah, a few people went to the parade. Awesome. Uh, guys, that was honestly, like, amazing, wasn't it? Uh, I know last week uh, at, on Sunday I wore green because I was still in mourning for the Packers, uh, but I really am, I really was excited about, about the Chiefs. Uh, and, man, what a fun team. Like, what an awesome Super Bowl. What a, what a fun, amazing championship run. Personally, I'm uh, fascinated with championship teams. I love studying like what makes a great team great. Uh, and recently, I, I stumbled upon this fascinating theory uh, by legendary basketball coach uh, Pat Riley. Uh, he talks about the, what he calls the disease of more. And essentially, the, the theory goes like this. Defending champions often fail the following season because every player who returns wants more money, wants more playing time, wants more shots per game, more recognition, more of the limelight. It's the disease of more. 
Now, this is not a prophecy over the Chiefs next season. Uh, I'm not saying that's how it's going to turn out. But as soon as I read that, I stopped and my mind left basketball, it left football, it left championships. Because what a perfect diagnosis of our cultural moment. I am totally 100% plagued by the disease of more. Here's what I mean. I want to constantly do more. I want to be more. I want to have more. I want to accumulate more. And I live in a society that tells me that I am an unlimited being who can do it all. If I just hustle enough, I can be more, I can get more done. If I find the right life hacks and quick fixes, I can maximize efficiency, I can master my limitations, and maybe even I can master time itself. And it sounds pretty great. But the problem with more is that it's never satisfied with enough. More is never satisfied with enough. Because as much as we can treat ourselves like machines, when we arrive at our goal, all we find is that there's just more to do. There's just more to accomplish. There's just more to buy. More, more, more. And I think that many of us are working ourselves into the ground in the pursuit of more. And it's leaving us hurried, irritable, tired, burnt out, anxious, and isolated. A.J. Swoboda, who is a pastor and author in Portland, makes this observation that's really pretty haunting about our culture. Here's what he says. He says, our 24-7 culture conveniently provides every good and service we want when we want it and how we want it. Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected, and as a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history yet. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. Our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. Our bodies are ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. Yeah. Right? Like, that's a, little, that's a little heavy. And we talk a lot at Christ Community about the goodness of our work. That, that we truly believe that Monday is a critical part of our discipleship and growth as apprentices of Jesus. We, we think that's true. But friends, Monday can also eat you alive. Right? 40% of Americans in 2018 said that they were more anxious than they were the year before. And another 40% in that same survey said that they were just as anxious as they were the year before. And sociologists are connecting these stunning trends and spikes in anxiety primarily to hyperactivity and to overwork. James Brian Smith put it this way, and I don't think he's wrong. The number one enemy of spiritual formation today is exhaustion. It's exhaustion. Whether you look at the weekly hours expected for white-collar workers or the, the need for multiple income for blue-collar workers or the pressure on our students to outperform one another for fewer and fewer scholarships, all the indicators tell us that if we want the good life, we must do more. Work harder, work longer, work better. And it's exhausting. And here's what really haunts me sometimes. 
What if we're spending the majority of our time exhausting ourselves only to achieve a life we don't even want? I mean, just think about your own life. When was the last time you had a day on the calendar when you had nothing scheduled? Zero commitments, nowhere to be, no expectations from others for you? The Israelites uh, had a day like this, and they still have a day like this every week, and it was called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath uh, has been misunderstood, mainly forgotten in a lot of Christian contexts today. But it formed the heartbeat of the Israelite rhythm of life. We're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Luke called Rediscovering Jesus. And one of the things that I've rediscovered recently about Jesus is that one of the main reasons Jesus was killed was his view of the Sabbath. A lot of the conflicts, if you're reading the Gospels and Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders, oftentimes it's on the Sabbath. More than his miracles, more than anything else he did, his teaching on the Sabbath, his view of the Sabbath, actually got him killed. So this morning, we're, we're going to view the Sabbath, and we're going to view it through a few different lenses. We're going to look at it through the eyes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Uh, we're going to look at the Sabbath through the eyes of Jesus, what he thought about the Sabbath, what he said to the religious leaders. And then we're going to look at the idea of Sabbath through the lens of our contemporary culture. And I think that if we rediscover what Jesus actually says about the Sabbath, we'll find that the practice of Sabbath is one of the greatest weapons that we have against the enemy of exhaustion and the disease of more. Sound good? All right, let's get into it. Luke 6, we'll pick up in verse 1, uh, where Luke drops us into the middle of one of these Sabbath conflicts. Read with me, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Here Luke gives us a glimpse into the perspective of the Pharisees on on the Sabbath. And, And he shows us this, that the Pharisees see the Sabbath as a rule. The Pharisees see the Sabbath as a rule, as simply a law uh, to be obeyed. A few verses later, Jesus is in the synagogue and on another Sabbath he's teaching when he notices a man with a withered hand sitting in in the crowd. And Jesus at that moment is like, yes, come on Holy Spirit, I'm going to heal this guy. And he sees him, he's looking that way, but look at how the leaders respond to the guy, starting in verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? So they could celebrate? So that they may find a reason to accuse him. So the Pharisees, they see this guy too. And they're sitting there waiting, hoping that Jesus will heal him, but only so that they can say that he broke the rule. And Luke tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts, uh, which if you have ever been like, hey, it would be cool if Jesus showed up on a Sunday morning. Remember, he knew their thoughts. And he, he brought the man up and sat him next to him, stood up next to him. And then he says this to the leaders. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So Jesus is basically like, all right, that grain thing, that was a little bit tricky, but surely you'll uphold the law in this situation. And notice how he asks them the question they were asking. He says, is it lawful to do good and save life or to do harm and destroy life? Now for us, that feels like the most cut and dry answer ever, right? But Luke says Jesus stops and looks around, like as if he was just waiting for someone to sheepishly raise their hand and say, I guess the good in life thing? 
but they stay silent. They stay silent. The Pharisees are so committed to their inflexible rule, they have such a desire to control the law that it prevents them from celebrating the good healing work happening right in front of their eyes. And here's the thing, they're not totally wrong, right? Like the Sabbath is a law. The Sabbath is a law. It's one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the command to Sabbath has more Hebrew words given to it than any other commandment. It's important. It's also the only commandment in the Ten Commandments that comes with a reason behind it. Here's why you should Sabbath. Look at where it first appears in Exodus 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The word that's used here is the Hebrew word Shabbat, uh, which literally means to stop or to cease. So often we translate it rest, but the Sabbath day was literally a day to stop. It was a day where all of Israel, even the foreigners, even the animals, even the land, stopped and rested. All were supposed to cease their work. So the Israelites had this built-in rhythm of life where they would work hard for six days and rest hard on the seventh day. And the reason that Moses gives for this uh, goes like this, that God worked six days and he rested on the seventh day. He Shabbated, so you should too. God wove a rhythm of rest into the fabric of creation and he invites us to join him. But if you read the rest of the Old Testament, uh, Israel sometimes struggled to join that Sabbath. So the Pharisees of Jesus' day had developed some extra rules, a series of extra rules to help make sure that the Sabbath was never broken. They did what, what many have called, a, they put a fence around the Torah. So if this is the law and this is the fence, uh, if you don't break the fence, you definitely won't break the law. That was the idea. So those were the purpose behind those rules. And this is key for understanding this text. That grain rule don't eat grain on the Sabbath? Not in the Bible. That don't heal on the Sabbath rule? Not in the Bible. Those were extra rules. But it's important we understand what's going on here because the, I think the Pharisees actually had a really, really good heart. They wanted to obey God. And it wasn't wrong for them, nor is it wrong for us to set up some boundaries that are smart to make sure that they didn't sin. Jesus was not mad that they wanted to keep the law. See, their problem was that they took their extra rules and they called it sin for other people. They took their extra rules and they called it sin for Jesus. They were so concerned about not breaking the law, about controlling the law for themselves, that they missed out on God's heart for the law in the first place. That's what Jesus challenges. So his conflict with the religious leaders wasn't over whether or not people should Sabbath. For all we know, from, from what we can understand from Scripture, Jesus was a practicing, observant Jew who, who practiced and observed the Sabbath. That's not what the conflict was about. The conflict was always about what is the Sabbath about? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? And what we see in this story is that Jesus has a much bigger vision for what Sabbath is than what the Pharisees have. Because Jesus sees the Sabbath as a gift. Jesus sees the Sabbath as a gift. Jesus wants to restore God's heart behind the Sabbath. It's more than just a rule to be obeyed. It's a gift to be celebrated and received. It's a gift. What kind of a gift is it? Well, first, the Sabbath is a gift of life. 
The Sabbath is the gift of life. Look back at what Jesus asked the Pharisees in his awkward public one-on-one with the man with the withered hand. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Again, this isn't a trick question. For Jesus, the Sabbath is clearly all about doing good and giving life. From the very beginning of creation, the Sabbath has been connected to the gift of life. Back in verse 3, you might have noticed that that Jesus recounts an odd story when when David in the Old Testament took consecrated bread, which was against the law technically, uh, but the reason he did it was to feed his hungry men. And Jesus' whole point with, with, with recounting that story is that the Sabbath should never take life. It should only ever give life. Jesus will will famously say elsewhere, the the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think we need to hear that first sentence. The Sabbath was made for us. It was a gift meant for our good. A day set aside to enjoy things that bring life and showcase God's goodness. The Sabbath is the gift of life. The Sabbath is also the gift of restoration. Restoration. After Jesus asked the Pharisees that question, there's this long tension-filled silence that follows. And and Mark's account of this story says that that Jesus grew increasingly angry as that silence went on. So Jesus, you can imagine, it's, it's silent. He's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then finally, he looks around at them and then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand. And his hand was restored. For Jesus, no rules could get in the way of the healing, restoring work that God wants to do in our lives. The Sabbath is a gift that's meant to restore us. And friends, God wants to restore you. He wants to restore your brokenness. He wants to restore your exhaustion. He wants to restore your soul. He wants to give us true healing Sabbath rest that we need. The Sabbath is the gift of restoration. And finally, the the Sabbath is the gift of a person. It's the gift of a person. You might have noticed that we've skipped over probably the most important point that Jesus makes about the Sabbath in this passage. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you've heard this before uh, quite a bit, it can be easy to miss just how astounding this claim is. It's one of the most astounding claims in the entire Bible. That word Lord is the Greek word kurios, uh, and and mostly, for the most part, up until this verse in Luke, it's only used to refer to one person, that's God the Father. But slowly, starting in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Luke starts to tell us that Jesus is also kurios. He's also Lord. But more important than that is is what he says he's the Lord of. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is part of the reason that the Pharisees get so mad. Is that Jesus is essentially saying, hey, you know that, that seventh day of creation? The, The pinnacle of all of God's created order where God himself stopped and rested from his work of creating? I was there for that. I created that. I'm in charge of that. It's about me. This is the most stunning and direct claim to deity that Jesus could possibly make. But he's not just claiming to be eternal here, he's also giving us incredibly good news. And that's this, that the Sabbath is here right now in me. 
True Sabbath rest is here right now in Jesus. I want you to to listen afresh to this great invitation that Jesus gives in Matthew 11. This is right in Matthew's gospel, right before he makes this claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Listen to this, soak in it. Hear these words. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus is true Sabbath rest. And he invites us to learn Sabbath from him, the master, the Lord of rest, to enter that gift of his rest, not only one day, but every day of the week. Friends, no one fights more for true rest than Jesus. But if this invitation stands from Jesus to find rest in him and to make us into people of rest, then there's a question that has to be burning on our hearts right now. Why is it so hard? Like, why is it so hard to find rest? See, we don't have the same problem the Pharisees had. Uh, I could be wrong, but I would guess that most of you aren't making Jesus mad because you're being too strict about the Sabbath. But I think our problem is the opposite. I think we have such a hard time finding rest because our culture sees the Sabbath as a threat. Our culture sees the Sabbath as a threat. The idea, the very idea of Sabbath undermines our contemporary American way of life. It threatens many of the things that we value most as a culture. And if the Pharisees' problem with Jesus was that he worked too much, ours would probably be that he didn't work hard enough. Building a day of rest into our already overloaded schedules threatens to undermine our desire for more. And at the very least, it sounds impractical, doesn't it? There's no way I could do that. I have too much going on. But whenever those feelings arise in us, when they arise in me, we must wonder if we're more aligned with the culture's rhythms or with the rhythms of Jesus. Are we actually receiving the gift of rest that Jesus offers? To figure that out, it might might be helpful for us to ask a few questions. First is this. Do you ever stop working? Do you ever stop working? Is there a day a week that you don't answer email? You don't even check email. You don't respond to texts. And instead, you delight in the good gifts that God gives that are outside of work. Lawyer and and author Justin Early says that a day like this reminds us that God is God and we are not. It's a rest of realizing we don't have anything to prove anymore. A day to stop trying to find our value in work and stop worrying about whether we're accomplishing enough. And, and I know, I know this is really hard. And so many of you are in industries that make it even harder. But it's worth considering the fact that Jesus fought for you and me to experience rest from our work. Are we taking him up on it? Do you ever stop working? We also have to ask, do you ever stop being entertained? Maybe some of us cease from our work and that's really good. But do we ever cease from Netflix? I mean, do you really ever cease from Netflix? From ESPN, from Amazon Prime, 
See, see, this one gets me. There's a reason we've moved from watching TV to, to binging it. Like, binging in every other context is bad, right? But we binge watch television. And I think it's because when we finally cease from the work and the kids, the activities, whatever it is, we just want to escape. This is true of shows, it's true of social media, which really doesn't help anyone rest. Like I go to social media and my rest level goes down, my anxiety spikes, Uh, that's just what it does to me. It's true of our technology in general. When we bounce back and forth between exhaustion and escape, we never find real rest. Do you ever stop being entertained? And finally, do you ever stop performing? And this honestly might be the real problem. Sabbath rest undermines our constant need to perform. This is the hardest thing for me. At work, in our finances, the stuff that we buy, the constant desire to keep up with our neighbors. And increasingly, this is showing up in how we raise our children. So so dads, moms, grandparents, aunties, uncles, guardians, do the children in your life get a day every week where they are not performing? where their identity is not in some way rooted in achievement. No schoolwork, no sports activities. Are we teaching them and modeling to them that the good life is found in performance or in rest in God's design? And I'm not trying to make us feel bad. And and Jesus isn't trying to make us feel bad either. He wants us to receive Sabbath rest as a gift. That's what he wants. He's made this rest available in himself. And I'm convinced that the best practice to enter that rest, the best remedy to the disease of hurry, the greatest witness to the world around us, the most defiant act of resistance to the values of our culture is taking 24 hours to stop working, stop being entertained, and stop performing. Yes, the Sabbath threatens our way of life. Yes, the Sabbath may seem impractical, but it is for our good. Now, there are probably a million questions running through your head right now on how to do this, and I can't answer every practical problem that we might face as we seek to find Sabbath rest more. But what I do want to do with the time that we have remaining is challenge us, is challenge us to make Sabbath a conversation and a priority in the life of the Brookside campus. So take a moment and dream. Suspend your disbelief, suspend your practical questions, and just think. Would you be able to take a 24-hour period every week this month to cease all work and striving? To simply exist? To remember the holiness of time? To accept your limitations? To leave some things undone? To trust that God will provide? To say no to the idols of our culture? To cultivate intimacy with Jesus? To make yourself aware of his presence in an age of heightened distraction? What could that look like in your life? What could that do for your relationships? What could that do for your soul? Friends, exhaustion doesn't have to be the standard operating procedure of our lives. It doesn't. So so with that vision in mind, I want to offer just a few practical suggestions for making this ideal more of a reality in your life. If you're like, yes, that's something that sounds great, that's something I want, I want to receive that rest, here are just a few practical suggestions of making that a part of your rhythm and whatever that looks like for you. 
And the first thing is the most practical of all the things is pick 24 hours. Pick 24 hours. It could be the traditional Jewish sundown to sundown. It could be wake up in the morning, go to bed at night. Uh, it could be noon to noon, 318 to 318. Whatever works for you, pick 24 hours. And this, might, this honestly might be the hardest part, right? Because <laughs> some of us have schedules that aren't fixed or, or that make this difficult. Mine isn't always on the same day, but as, as my wife and I have tried to incorporate more Sabbath the last few months, uh, it's typically Thursday night to Friday night. But pick, pick 24 hours that could usually most of the time work for you. And, and if, if you really need to start smaller, pick 12 hours. The goal is to find this rest, not to be so overwhelmed that you don't do it at all. Pick, find 12 hours that you can carve out to get started and build from there. Pick 24 hours. Then once you've picked that 24 hours, uh, say no. Say no. Make a list of things that you need to say no to if you are going to truly rest. I can't tell you what those are for you, uh, but I could guess that if it takes life from you, if it doesn't restore you, if it distracts you from awareness to God, if it relates to work, if it involves catching up on all the things you didn't get done during the week, it probably needs to be on the list. What things do you need to say no to to find true rest? Pick 24 hours, say no. And then after you've, you've made your no list, uh, make your yes list. Say yes. What kinds of things give you life? What kinds of things help you worship God and enjoy his creation? What kinds of things help you become more aware of Jesus and the state of your soul? What kind of things restore you? Again, I don't know what those things are for you. Uh, for me, the list includes playing disc golf, playing board games with friends, intentional time with my wife, <clears throat> other time with my wife, uh, prayer and unhurried time in scripture, being outside, enjoying good food, good drink, being with friends. What are those things for you that give you life and restore you? The uh, uh, pastor, John Mark Comer, another pastor actually in Portland, oddly, uh, he, he gives this really helpful filter in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, for figuring out if, it, how he, what he puts on his Sabbath, what he puts on his nose and yes lists. He says, uh, is it rest and is it worship? And if the answer is no, to either of those things, it doesn't go on. If it's yes to either of those things, it goes on. What's your no list? What's your yes list? Sabbath is hard. It takes work to make it happen. Your boss isn't going to come to you and be like, you know what I feel like you need? Sabbath. It's not going to happen. If it does, please tell me. Um, it'll be a process of trying and failing and trying again, of figuring out over time what your no and your yes is. But I can say, from my own fights and failures the last few months, that it's a gift that's so, so worth it. Jesus wants a day with us. Not to lay burdens on us, but to take them from us. To restore us. To heal us. He's so committed to this for us that he carved a rhythm into the universe to give it to us. Let's take it. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to see the areas of our life where we're overworked, where we're unnecessarily exhausting ourselves, where we're striving. God, would you help us to find rest in you every day of the week and every week of the year?
Would you be present in our lives as we seek this rest? And I pray that we would come to you, the Lord of the Sabbath, who wants to share the yoke with us. Pray this in the name of your son Jesus, by the power of spirit. Amen.